0: To do, I'll just see if I can get done with today's sermon. We're going to focus on verse twenty-three. In context, we'll begin at verse twenty, John chapter seventeen. Again, this is the intercession of Christ. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the Gospel of John. We've arrived at chapter seventeen. It is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is what was pointed to in the Old Testament. The high priest would go in and make prayer on behalf of the people in covenant with God, and then a sacrifice annually. Here Christ is doing this intercession continually. The high priestly prayer done in the Old Testament pointed to this very thing. This, that symbol is the substance, and through this Gospel of John, we're able to get really... A inside look at what is going on. It is a private prayer. He's not praying for people in general, and he states that especially here in this text. He says he's instead he is praying for his disciples. Unless we misunderstand, the disciples he has in mind are, yes, those 11 in that room. Judas, if you remember, would be dismissed not praying for him, he's praying for those 11, but it certainly would apply to then all who would believe in Christ, who would receive the word given by the apostles and become followers of Christ. By the way, to be a Christian, these are just different terms we use. It means you are a follower of Christ, that you are a disciple. It isn't just a religious organization That you just happen to sign up for. The call is follow Christ. Pick up your cross and follow Him. In verse 20, Jesus makes this clear I'm not just praying for these in this room, but all who would come to faith in Christ. We are standing then on the shoulders of giants in the faith, if you will. Jesus Christ, of course, is that sure foundation. He has determined to call, commission, consecrate, and then command the very disciples in that room to go out and do the same, to make more disciples. That process and that calling, that consecration, that commissioning, and the command, that goes on from that day until the Lord comes home, and comes back to us, should I say, to take us home and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In this section of scripture, 20 through the end of the chapter, Jesus emphasizes a number of characteristics. We looked at unity last week as he refreshes and reminds again the unity that we have with one another through our union with Christ. Then he will talk about what we're going to focus on today is the perfection of that bond that we have with him and what it actually does. It's a term which hopefully will shed a little bit more light on. And then, of course, blessedness and perseverance, which we'll get to in the coming days. This unity among believers is a spiritual dynamic between God and men. It is the unity that he's speaking here is reserved for those that are in Christ. In the world you will have much tribulation or disunity. But those that are in Christ are said then not to be of the world, the world system, just as Jesus is not of the world. We live in a culture, understandably, then in chaos, confusion, and tribulation, if you will, on many sides. The solution, however, is in Christ, and the world seeks peace in all the wrong places seeking to have conflict resolution, if you will, among themselves and each other. But there's a problem. The solutions that then are posed are temporary at best. They'll hold out until the next sinful wave of passion breaks over the artificial reef constructed and swamps the best intentions in a tsunami of depravity. The solution now has is always the solution that has always been, and that is simply this. You want it? You want peace? You want security, safety, unity among men? It is through Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin. Sin has to be dealt with, and Christ has dealt with sin. True humanity, uh, true unity, should I say, only comes through Jesus Christ. It is his supernatural grace that will be perfectly accomplished. That's his point. This perfection, in that sense, is found in verse 23 where Jesus discloses to his disciples that this unity will be brought about through the regeneration that will be accomplished. Those in Christ will not just get along a little bit better than those that are outside of Christ. The text will say, as we'll look at it, they will become perfectly one. That's the goal. That is the end. We'll explore it, what it means in its context here as we unfold it. Let's go ahead and read that 23 in, in its context, beginning in verse 20. Here he shifts in his prayer, he's been praying for those 11, and then he explicitly says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. There's the phrase, perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will give us, through your Spirit, an insight to your word. That we may indeed hear and heed these very words that Christ has for us today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The word I pointed out, and really I'm going to focus a little bit on, and we'll see what we can do today with that, is this term perfect. is translated here for us, perfect. It comes from a Greek word, teleo, meaning to be finished, completed, or mature. You can think of it in that way. So in this sense, this perfection is a maturity, a completing, or a finishing, if you will. I looked up a few other translations, English translations, see how they phrased it, so we don't misunderstand it. The New American Standard Standard translates it this way, that they may be perfected in unity. You can kind of hear, get the idea of that in the definition of the word. That is kind of a maturing, if you will, a completing in unity. Um, The Net Bible says that they may be completely one. NIV, that they may be brought to complete unity. They're trying to add an additional phrase, whether it's perfected or completion. That's, That's the idea here. Jesus' work of uniting the saints with each other and God will be accomplished. It will be perfectly accomplished. It will be finished. Although there is indicated here that there is a progression, if you will. Just like a little child would grow up and mature, you can see growth, right? Right? Well, same way with spiritual growth, but you also have the assurance here that this will happen. This phrase here, that they, uh, may uh, seem to us like as a possibility, but that is not how it's structured grammatically. It is a purpose clause. In other words, this will happen. That's the, uh, that's the idea. It's not wishful or hopeful thinking in the way we might think of it. It is a certainty. This is a, uh, an order which will be accomplished, that is, this perfect unity with one another and with God. It'll find its fullest expression, as we understand, in what we think of as the eternal state. Any antagonist ideas bubbling up from the sinful flesh will be done away with by Christ who will destroy all of the works of the devil. On this side of the eternal state, now, if you will, you'll see progress in it. Some people call this sanctification, if you will. Sanctification, the idea of that is to be made perfectly righteous and it will occur. But in this side of eternity, you'll see a a progression of it, a growth, if you will. Christians are positionally perfected, sanctified, set apart through the divine accomplishment of Jesus Christ. That is, the, the only way positionally that you'll be able to stand before God is through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, not yours. Any work that you do or have done or will do will be marred with sin. Christ had no sin. All of his work is perfect. It is that perfect righteousness that is imputed to the saints, and by that righteousness you will stand, and the perfecting work also provides an atonement or a covering or a payment, if you will, for those transgressions that would otherwise render you guilty. We are talking about this morning in their ministry training class, and I didn't get a chance to say it, but if I was asked, you know, to, on that aspect there, Gordon, it was, and, and I'm going to refer to you more than once. You really intrigued my mind on a lot of things. I appreciate your teaching, but There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I think you were talking about guilt, right? And and we were emphasizing that. Um, In Christ, there's no condemnation. You're not guilty anymore. Let that weigh on you. It's a good thing to think about. There's a contemporary song I don't listen to a lot, but I'll go ahead and admit some of my sin here now. I really like Aaron Key's song on You're Not Guilty Anymore. I hear those words and I would just weep sometimes. Because you know what? In my own flesh, I'm guilty. But in Christ, I'm not. And what a great overwhelming thing to have roll around in your mind and your brain. Not that you have accomplished anything, but Christ has accomplished everything. And positionally before Him, that's how you stand. This promise of perfection has already occurred, if you will, in the mind of God. Because Christ is perfect. And anything that fails to measure up has been atoned for. No wonder you should rejoice, have great peace and great hope because of Christ. But I know in this terrestrial world, if you will, day to day, yes. Our practical experience of this sanctification is progressive. It it will mature. There'll be some growth, and you should see some growth. Not even perfection in that, but you should see some progress in that. You'll need to be actively engaged in that progression. I was talking about someone this week about one of my favorite books. It's by an old dead guy. Normally they write pretty good books that hang around for hundreds of years. It's by John Owen named The Mortification of Sin. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. You can get it for free from monergism.com. Actually, the version they have there has been updated in language so you don't have to read all the yees and the these and thou's and all of that. It's, it's, um, it's done quite well, and you can download it in many different formats for free. I like the Kindle version. But it 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 emphasizes from this, uh, yes, this progression here calls on the Christian to actively engage in killing the flesh is the terminology he will use. It comes from Romans 8.13 where Paul tells the church of Rome, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay, If that's what characterizes your life, be assured you are going to receive eternal damnation. It'll kill you in this life and the life to come. But if by the Spirit, and that's the key, but if by the Spirit, not if by the flesh, but if by God's indwelling Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the distinction by those that are in Christ and those that are not. Those that are not in Christ are living according to the flesh, and they're going to die. They're like a, a body in, in, a, in a sea of water. If it was dead, it, it would do nothing. But if you're out and you're alive in the middle of an ocean, and the, though you can't see safety, land, or whatever, anywhere nearby, I guarantee you what will happen is you'll continue to paddle till you can paddle no more. You will move and engage and, if you will, struggle. That, that's one of the keys in your own heart to examine, am I in the faith? Well, am I living according to the flesh? If this is, if this is what I'm doing, and guess what? You're a dead man. You might be floating around, but you will surely sink. Be killing sin is, or sin will be killing you is the summary. Owen would write, It is our duty then, and that is... Again, this is not duty of the flesh. This is the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Duty to be perfecting holiness out of the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. That's what he mean, the perfecting he means is a, a growing in this, a maturity. He says it's our duty to grow in grace daily, 2 Peter 3.18. It's our duty then to renew our inward man day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. He goes on to say, this can't be done without mortifying sin day by day. I think that's an important thing. That is, every day, wake up and think about engaging in this occupation of killing sin in your life. You can't be, he says, be perfected in holiness to grow in grace and to have your mind renewed unless you're actively engaged in killing sin. Sin, he would say, strongly opposes every act of holiness and every degree to which we grow. No man should think he is making any progress in holiness if he doesn't walk over the dead bodies of his lust. Anyone who does not kill sin that stands in his way is not taking any steps towards his journey's end. Anyone who finds no opposition from sin and does not take every opportunity to mortify it, is actually at peace with sin. He is not dying to it. A desire, then, I would say, to put the, to death the deeds of the flesh is a sign of life. If you're satisfied to be submerged in the sea of sinfulness, guess what? You have no breath of life in your body. You're not alone, and we'll unpack this if I can get to some of it. You're not alone. In our text, here Jesus is praying for your perfection. I just wanted to include it. it I just wanted to include that idea. It, it calls for you to engage to spiritual battle your own flesh through the power of the Spirit. But notice, you're not alone in this. The context here is Jesus is praying not just for these eleven, but here is you. Put your man right there. Put your name. Right there. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will. Okay? So we recognize that, but also recognize that this is not a battle and a warfare to do alone. This is Christ's work. I'm going to, if... I just don't know how time will be. I might only get to one of these today, but maybe two. But if I were to get to all three, I have them on the back of your worship folder concepts, ideas, that may help you in perfecting, maturing, completing the work of God by the Spirit in your life. And from our text, I'd argue simply this. It is, first and foremost, a tool, a concept, an idea in your mind as you're engaging in this battle is first the very revelation of Jesus Christ as he makes that known. Two, to recognize that God's presence is with you. The fullness of the presence of God is with you all the time. And finally the very love of God in Christ Jesus, which is beyond your imagination. Let's look at this first one, and I'll show you where I get it from, and that is this perfecting work, this maturing, this completing, is going to come about through the very revelation of Jesus Christ to you. Notice verse 22. He's not praying. He's praying for those who would believe. That's who's the focus. That is you right now. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Or you can put your name there. This phrase, the way it's constructed, many find it difficult. What's this glory that he's referring to? And what is it that he would give to you personally? You have to understand what glory is in a general sense, and then we'll look at it here specifically. If I were to define glory, I like to define it as the beauty of God's divine perfections, if you will. That is, his attributes. And you say perfections because they are that. They are completed. They are fully mature. There there is no getting better than God's attributes, if you will. And when you behold them, you would describe them, I'm using a different word than glory, and that is beautiful, beautiful, right? Um, Any kind of wonderful attribute that you might see, if it's done in perfection, which we don't see, we always see maybe near perfection, we would respond that it is beautiful. We'd be all inspired We'd be amazed. It would have a great impact on what you might see. When Jesus came, incarnated in flesh, John will tell us in his Gospel in 1.14 at the very beginning that he became flesh, John 1.14, and he dwelt among us. So, so here's John thinking back on Christ who he was with during that ministry. And his response about seeing Christ is this, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is just two of the glorious aspects of attributes, perfections that we're talking about. Perfect grace, perfect truth, they're exemplars of Christ's glory. He has glory, and they saw it. John testifies, he and his disciples, they saw this in Christ's earthly ministry. We know the miracles, perfectly accomplished, No shenanigans here. People really did gain their eyesight immediately. People who were lame really were able to get up and not only get up but also carry things whose muscles had atrophied and had no possibility of actually carrying up. I have a hard time just getting out of bed in the morning. <laughs> could imagine laying there for years and years and then immediately get up, and I don't care how heavy it is, but to pick up a mat? They were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses of an exemplary life of Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what it would be like to be with someone who never sinned, who never had a bad attitude, who never had a bad affection, who never had a bad action. Do you understand who Christ is? He is full of grace and truth. This is beyond what they could imagine. They were witnesses to it in fact they even said show us your glory Jesus knowing they couldn't bear the fullness of that it would be so bright it would just impact them in such a way they would fall over like dead men. indeed they did he showed them a glimpse we call it the transfiguration and they were just so amazed they they stupidly didn't know what to say at that point They saw his life. They were witnesses then of here, God in flesh, suffering, serving, sacrificing. These are are attributes of his glory, the beauty of it. They saw his resurrection, 40-day post-ministry resurrection, his ascension into heaven. In addition, this writer, John, saw a vision of Christ in heaven in which he saw the glorified Christ. It was overwhelming. Back to our phrase then, this glory. What glory is he talking about? He says he's full of glory, but he has this glory and he's going to give it to you. What, what glory is he giving? Well, he's not given glory that he didn't already possess. He says that the Father has given me. What glory the Father has given me? Well, Christ is fully God. He has glory from the very beginning. We would say his glory was veiled in flesh, Right? hidden, he took on the form of a servant, always kept his glory, but it couldn't be fully seen in flesh, in bodily form. Nevertheless, the fullness of deity was there, though we couldn't see it in its fullness. It was veiled. They got a glimpse of it. So what is this glory that Christ then receives from the Father that he then gives to you. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, I think makes a good point here, and hopefully it's understandable. He says glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character or person in a, and here it is, in a revelatory context. Jesus has mediated then the glory of God personally to his first followers and through them to those who believe on account of their message. The glory then that the Father gives is this divine purpose for which Christ comes. Christ says, I always go about the Father's will. The Father has decreed that his glory would be made known. That's what he's speaking of. It isn't something Christ doesn't already possess intrinsically, but that this glory then would be made known or disclosed by the Son. That is, the revelation of God might be known by Christ. Think about it. In the fullness of Christ, in his ministry and his life, then, what is known about God in its most clearest sense? Many things. I can think of a few, can you? How about mercy? How about grace? How about forgiveness? Patience? Truth? Faithfulness? Kindness? Love? joy, peace, self-control, righteous indignation even, as he turns over the tables, all of these are made known by Christ in his ministry. The knowledge of the person and nature and the work of God in creation is then fully manifested or made known by Jesus Christ. This is the revelatory work of Jesus Christ that he knows... And he has, and under the decree of the Father, has made known to you. John would also say in his beginning of his gospel, if you remember, John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. You don't have eyes to see the Spirit, right? That's what he's getting to. In your physical flesh, you don't see God. And really, in a fallen mind, you wouldn't see God either in a spiritual way because you're spiritually blind, spiritually dead. You have no capacity to know truly God. No one has seen God, John one eighteen, The only God, that's speaking of Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, it is fully God, and yet He is a person, the Son. He has made Him known, John 1.18. This is the glory given, directed, decreed, if you will, by the Father to the Son. And what does the Son do? He makes Him known. Matthew records it this way, where Christ says in 11.27 in His Gospel, that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and any one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you know the Son? That's the glory that Christ has been given to give to you. To his disciples, he grants to them a Knowledge of God, not in an informational sense only, of course, that's part of it, but in a personal and experiential sense. This is a real communion with Christ in which. This revelation then unites all those that are in Christ in perfect unity and as you continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, that will increase as well as your communion with God. But be rest assured, it will result in perfection. It'll be perfectly known in the eternal state, but it will progress here because Christ has made that known. Now, See the connection a couple chapters prior, John chapter 15, if you will. Turn there. Because I'd rather you see the words of Christ than mine. Well, Christ has already been explaining to these disciples of this revelatory information that has been made known to them, uniquely known. John 15, 15. He says, I no longer call you slaves. For the slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. Note the personal relationship there. It isn't a slave-master relationship in this sense, right? Jesus is Lord. And we can call ourselves a servant in that sense to his sovereignty, but alongside of that, don't miss it, he calls you a friend. We sing this song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, kind of glibly, don't we? But can you imagine the sovereign God of the universe would make himself known and choose you to be his friend? And I'll pick on Gordon again because it's not in a general sense like you talked about salvation, coming to Christ. I wanted to mention that to the, to the love aspect, but I don't think I'm going to get there. But anyway, uh, in case I do right here, it, it's, this is what you've got to get beyond. It isn't that there's some sort of plan of salvation that you adopt into and now you're just in this sea of Christians all together floating around a general sense. Oh, here's the whole sea of Christians over here. Here's the whole sea of non-Christians. Jesus Christ knows your name. Your name. He chose you Specifically, Like he chose those 11, he chooses them all. And what does he say? He says, come follow me. This changes everything. It is Christ who then makes all of that known and chooses then to make you a friend. I don't care if you don't have a friend in this world. Do you have Jesus Christ? That's all you need. All other friendships that we have, as great as they might be, they, they can be testy at times, can't they? At, at times we can struggle in our various relationships. I don't care how close you might be. <laughs> but not in Christ. It is a friendship that God has chosen to have with you specifically. Specifically. He says, I have called you friends, back to the text, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is what I'm getting at as far as the revelatory aspect. What you know about God is through Christ. He has made it known. It is, it is why you have affections for Christ, knowledge of him. Oh, yes, you're going to have to study to show yourself approved and engaged. It isn't come by osmosis, but the ability to do it is through Jesus Christ and is through our friendship, if you will, with him because he has chosen to be friends with each and every individual one of us. And he says that. You didn't choose me, verse 16, but I chose you. <laughs> Still mind boggling, isn't it? Well, you say, Well, I chose Christ. Of course, I did. Yes, you would when you see his glory. Of course, you would. There would be no one. We call this doctrinally the irresistible grace. It's just not some doctrinal term of technicality. This is what we're talking about. You're made alive and you see and behold the glory of Christ and you say, yes, you will say yes. You can't but not say yes because of who He is. And it is through His divine revelation that He then makes the Father known. He chooses you individually. And beyond that, then, commissions you, by the way, individually. Note the next phrase, I appointed you. Appointed you to do what? That you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That is, you are obedient to him. Fruit is all of the uh, of the work of the Spirit working out in your life, whether it's killing sin, as we started with, or love, joy, peace, patience, self control. All these aspects are the are the outworking of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that it should abide. That is, it'll always be characteristic of your life. Again, in this life, not in perfection, but you. should see some of that fruit in season in your life. In that state, then, you can go ask in Christ's name, that is, not add a little coda to the end of your prayer, but according to His will, because it's been made known to you, so that then God will answer your prayer. If you regard iniquity in your heart, He's not going to hear you. If you haven't been awakened by the Holy Spirit, you have no platform, if you will, or no connection to commune with God. But those who have are called friends. Beyond that, an intimate relationship, and you will pray in accordance to God's will. And Christ says, I've commanded you these things, and how will it be demonstrated Among the life of the believers, we circle right back to where we were at in unity so that you will love one another. It's expressed in then our personal relationships with one another. Back to our text, verse 22 It gives a purpose here. It says, notice the word in verse 22, that they may be one even as we're one. Uh, th- this will be repeated in the next phrase as well. It's an important, it's important phrase to, to know. It's talking about a real relationship. That they could be one in union because of the revelatory work of Christ, that they can be one, and then it says, even as we are one. This is the Son speaking about the Father. The Father and the Son, God, have eternally existed in that union. This is a bond in the person of the Godhead Familiar terms are used so that we can understand it, if you will, father, son, to help us understand some aspects of this relationship. The point is there is perfect personal communion within the Godhead, perfect unity and perfect love. Our individual union with God, then, is the foundation of our union with one another. It is through our union with Christ, just as the Father and the Son are in perfect unity, is that we will be one with one another. Galatians 3.28, then Paul describes this new status for those that were outside of union with one another because of temporal things within this life, distinctions, he would say there's neither Jew or Greek. Well, those are quite in contrast and conflict. There's neither slave or free. Again, quite contrast. Male and female. And of course, in our insane world, they don't quite see the contrast, but that's a whole different story of mental and depravity. Any case, male and female, He's he's not eliminating those distinctions. They actually always exist. But what will bring them together and what will unify them? You are all one in Christ Jesus. We continue to have distinguishing Features, functions, and so forth, but we are united by the singularity of Jesus Christ. And what the world really needs to seek is not more diversity, but rather union with Christ. That's the answer. All of these theories, you can throw them aside. No theology, no God. You want to know God, it is through Christ. That's the characteristic of a Christian, then we are united and one in Him. I'll finish up with one section, and yes, I'll only get to the first point, but you can come back next week, and I promise to finish at least one more. 1 Peter chapter 1. Here I want you to turn. We've got a couple minutes. It explains this manifestation of the divine revelation given by Jesus Christ about who he is. Peter was one of these in that room that night. And he's now preaching to Disciples, the verse 20, the ones who will believe, right? And he's reminding them of this in verse 8 of chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter saw him, but the people that he's speaking to, they haven't seen him. That's you. You've never met Jesus Christ. You've never seen him. You wouldn't be able to pick him out in a crowd had he walked through. But notice what characterizes these that are in Christ. They love him. And though you don't see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's that word again. Obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your soul. All of this is the revelatory work of Christ that now at one point, okay, this might have been informationally a person of history perhaps and you have an informational idea of him. Maybe you know claims about Christ. But the phraseology used here about you don't see him, but you, you love him. This is the deepest affection of your heart. How did that come about? Because we told you some facts about Jesus Christ. Love's a strange thing well, what is it that causes people to, to love something or someone? They see the, the beauty in, in that. And here it is expressed that you have faith, that is, you believe. That beyond that, it is a great rejoicing, that is, praise, it is a great joy, and beyond that, inexpressible and filled with glory. That describes those that are in Christ Jesus. And here's my question to you right now. Have you seen him? Do you know him? I challenge folks that I don't really care to get into debate about any of this, particularly when you're dealing with cults and people that have a different view of Jesus Christ or maybe even just the culture has a superficial view of Christ. You know what my prescription for him is on a regular basis? I tell him to open up to the Gospel of John. I love John. Have you enjoyed it? I said, why don't you read this slowly from the beginning? Because John says these things are written so that you would what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing about the words of who? Who? They're right here. Point them to the Scripture. Call them to see the beauty. And it is Christ, then, that would make that known. It is Christ's work. It's divine revelation, but you have to point them to the source, and that is Christ. And it's found in His Word. And this is how it is communicated from those who have seen Christ. Belief, faith, rejoicing, joy, inexpressible, filled with glory. And if your life is characterized by a lot of joy and inexpressible uh, glory, I would just call you to look at Christ. It'll change your perspective on a lot of stuff. Those things that particularly weigh you down. And for those that are in Christ, know how this comes about. It is through the revelatory work of Christ, no wonder we give him praise. Peter knows this, and that's how he began the section. You're already there. Drop your eyes back to verse th- 3 of the same chapter, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's praise given. According to his great mercy, he has what? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is his work. It is his revelatory work. It's described by Peter here as causing to be born again. You had nothing to do with your first breath of life. You have nothing to do with your first breath of spiritual life. You can't make yourself be born again. This is the work of God through Christ. No wonder a praise is offered, the blessing of God. What have you been born again to? A living hope through Christ who is indeed risen from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What if you don't get there? What if you fail along the way? Christ is a perfect Savior. (laughs) He will accomplish all that he has purposed. Peter will remind us in the next verse who are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the same imagery as perfected, completed. It will be accomplished. No wonder the response is to the praise of the glory of Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the glimpse of the glory of Christ. I pray that your people would be increasingly satisfied by Christ. I pray for myself. None of us look to Christ to the degree in which He is worthy of our thoughts and expressions. But I pray by the power of the Spirit that you will, through the very words of Christ, make it known that our affections for Christ would be increased. And for those that have a blurry image of the beauty of your Son, I pray it would be increasingly clarified as they grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. I pray this in Christ's name because I know it is your will. Amen. Take a moment now privately to exalt, rejoice, and have faith in Christ. Respond to Christ privately where you're at even now. I'll give you a moment to think on.